Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This replay of a live broadcast is titled, Individualized Approaches in CLL and SLL, Meeting the Needs of Your Patients Now and Preparing for the Future, is provided by Prova Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hi, I'm Dr. Andrew Lipsky from Columbia University, New York, and I'd like to welcome you to the program, Individualized Approaches in CLL-SLL, Meeting the Needs of Your Patients Now and Preparing for the Future. And with that, I'll introduce the overall program. So I'll begin with a brief presentation about continuous therapy and frontline CLL-SLL, focusing on the BTK inhibitors. Then my colleague from Mass General, Dr. Jake Sumerai, we give a presentation focusing on time-limited frontline therapy in CLL-SLL. After that, Dr. Catherine Coombs from UCI Health will give a presentation on selecting and sequencing therapy for relapse refractory CLL. And in the last portion of the program, we'll have some discussion. First, a case-based discussion about selecting initial therapy, then a panel discussion about the future directions for the field, and we'll conclude the program. So beginning with some brief remarks about continuous therapy and frontline CLL, focusing on the Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors. It's been known for some time that CLL cells are addicted to activation of the B-cell receptor pathway, and that by targeting BTK, a critical kinase and proximal B-cell receptor signaling, this small class of molecules inhibits cell proliferation and migration and decreases NF-kappa B activity, which leads to decreased cell survival. Shown here is data from the Resume 2 study, the frontline registration trial for abrutinib, which led to its approval. This study was a randomized comparison of abrutinib versus clorandacil, with the primary endpoint being progression-free survival. With up to eight years of follow-up, the median PFS has still not been reached. From the first major frontline trial to the present day, you can see on this slide the NCCN preferred regimens for treating first-line CLL. The second-generation BTK inhibitors, acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib, now both have a Category 1 recommendation as first-line preferred regimens from the NCCN, and so does time-limited therapy with venetoclax, which Dr. Sumerai will discuss in detail. You can see that abrutinib is also recommended, but it is not a preferred first-line regimen, according to the NCCN. Turning back to the more mature data for abrutinib, you can see that there is now a PFS benefit in at least five randomized studies with an overall survival benefit in two. Highlighted here is one of those trials, the ECOG trial, in which abrutinib was compared to the most active chemoimmunotherapy regimen. Previously untreated patients less than 70 years of age without deletion 17P who were randomized to abrutinib plus rituximab versus fludarabine, cyclophosphamide, and rituximab. The primary endpoint here was progression-free survival, and at three years of follow-up, the abrutinib rituximab treatment arm demonstrated an improved PFS compared to chemoimmunotherapy. And that translated into a statistically significant overall survival benefit, with 98.8% of abrutinib-treated patients alive at three years. Another study was the Phase three Alliance study comparing abrutinib to chemoimmunotherapy in an older untreated CLL population via a three-arm randomization. 547 patients greater than or equal to 65 years old were randomized to receive either abrutinib monotherapy 
abrutinib with six cycles of rituximab or bendamustine and rituximab. With a median follow-up of 55 months, the median PFS was 44 months with BR and was not reached in either abrutinib or the 48-month PFS estimate was 76% for both of the abrutinib arms. And at the latest follow-up, there remained no significant differences in overall survival across arms. Notably, no additional benefit was seen with the addition of rituximab to abrutinib. I'll now turn to the second-generation BTK inhibitors, which were developed to have more on-target kinome profile binding, being more specific for the BTK kinase. We saw a PFS benefit for acalabrutinib over the chloramidocil comparator with the schema shown on the next slide in the ELEVATE-DN study. This phase three study enrolled 535 elderly or unfit CLL patients, and the drug was given either as monotherapy or in combination with obinutuzumab, with chloramidocil obinutuzumab as a comparator. On the right-hand panel, you can see the published PFS curves, and notably, this study was recently updated after four years of follow-up, at which point the median PFS was not reached in the calabrutinib arms. And interestingly, even though obinutuzumab is only given for the first six months of therapy, the estimated PFS at 48 months was 87% for acalabrutinib plus obinutuzumab versus 78% for acalabrutinib alone and 25% for the comparator. Of course, we also have xanabrutinib, is still pending approval in CLL, but is approved in mantle cell lymphoma. And keep in mind that in CLL, xanabrutinib has a category one recommendation from the NCCN. This drug was evaluated in CLL in the Sequoia trial, where it showed a PFS benefit over the BR comparator. Now in more detail, the first cohort of patients from this trial without 17P were randomized to receive either xanabrutinib 160 milligrams BID versus standard chemotherapy with bendamustine and rituximab, and on the right, we're looking at the primary endpoint, which was progression-free survival in about two years. This trial reported a significant PFS benefit for all comers with xanabrutinib with a PFS hazard ratio of 0.42. Now that we've reviewed data from three different BTK inhibitors, you might be wondering, do we have direct head-to-head -head comparisons of BTK inhibitors and CLL? And the answer is yes, we do but with the asterisk that the current randomized comparison data is really in the relapse of factory setting, and so that this data would need to be extrapolated to frontline. The first study I'll highlight here is the Elevate RR trial, which is a randomized trial of acalabrutinib versus brutinib in relapse CLL. This was designed as a non-inferior study, and note that these were all high-risk patients with either 11Q deletion or deletion 17P, that they were heavily pretreated, with 45% of patients in the study having deletion 17P. The primary endpoint was assessed by an independent review committee for non-inferiority of PFS. And you can see here that the PFS curves are essentially overlapping. Since the way that the study was designed, the non-inferior endpoint was met, a secondary endpoint, the rate of AFib and AFWater, was assessed for superiority. And seeing here, you can see that the numbers for AFib, AFWater, or 6% for acalabrutinib and 15% for abrutinib, and this was statistically significant. And there are also differences in the rates of hypertension, 9% for acalabrutinib versus 23% for abrutinib. There is another randomized comparison head-to-head -head of BTK inhibitors, again in the relapse setting. This was the Alpine study, which compared xanabrutinib to abrutinib. And we just saw updated data from this study at ASH in December with assessments this time made by an independent review committee. 
here we saw a progression-free survival benefit at 29.6 months with a PFS of 79.5% in the zetabrutinib arm versus 67.3% in the abrutinib arm. And notably, atrial fibrillation was also substantially reduced on zetabrutinib, seen in 5.2% of patients versus 13.3% on abrutinib. What about patients with TP53 aberrations? Here I mean deletion 17P or TP53 mutation. So in contrast, and in lucky contrast to the chemoimmunotherapy era, it's clear that with indefinite BTK inhibition strategies, patients with TP53 aberrations, again, this is about 5 to 7% of patients, are doing much better. These patients have PFS estimates with single-agent abrutinib that have been calculated in a pooled analysis of 89 patients in four clinical trials. And with a median follow-up of 49.8 months, the median PFS has not been reached. And the PFS and OS estimates at four years were 79% and 88% respectively. This slide is meant to show that TP53 aberrant patients have substantially improved outcomes regardless of the small molecule therapy chosen, although the PFS may be less durable with time-limited therapy approaches for this patient subgroup, and Dr. Sumerai will focus on that in his presentation. What about the side effect profile of covalent BTK inhibitors? We've already spoken a little bit about atrial fibrillation, but in the next few slides, I wanna provide some management pearls for dealing with this BTK class effect type side effects, as well as what are termed the nuisance side effects. These include contusion, hypertension, arthralgia, and diarrhea. And though it's thought that all of the BTK inhibitors can cause any of these side effects, in the next few slides, I'll highlight individual effects that may be seen preferentially with a particular agent. So ibrutinib, for example, is known to cause myalgias and arthralgias and can also be associated with rash. What about acalabrutinib? Acalabrutinib has an idiosyncratic effect of having a headache. That headache is responsive to caffeine and usually only lasts for the first two or three weeks of therapy. What about xanabrutinib? Xanabrutinib has perhaps some idiosyncratic toxicities, particularly GI toxicity and maybe some cytopenias, although that remains to be under further investigation. What about the management of particular BTKI side effects? Well, starting with atrial fibrillation, a good strategy here is to screen every patient for cardiovascular risk factors before starting therapy. For patients with pre-existing AFib, this isn't an absolute contraindication to starting BTK inhibition, although it can be a bit more challenging, and I'd encourage you to have a conversation with the patient's cardiologist. Useful tools here can be the CHADS2 VAS score, as well as beta blockade for treating AFib. And when you do introduce anticoagulation, DOACs such as apixaban can be dose modified. Anoxaparin can be given concurrently. But one thing that should be, never be given concurrently is a vitamin K antagonist. Do not put patients on a BTK inhibitor and warfarin. What about the risk of bleeding? We know from the lab that BTK inhibitors do have effects on platelets. Yet, it's been encouraging that in several clinical trials, we've seen that BTK inhibitors are only associated with minor bleeding and contusions, and they really do not portend a substantially increased risk with major hemorrhage. That being said, you should counsel patients to avoid over-the-counter supplements that may exacerbate bleeding risks, such as vitamin E or fish oil. And it's recommended to hold BTK inhibitors for three days before and after minor procedures or longer for major procedures. And if someone does develop a major bleeding event on a BTK inhibitor, transfusing platelets, regardless of the platelet count, will help to reverse the aggregation defect and correct the bleeding diabetes.
What about these nuisance side effects? Hypertension can actually be quite prevalent, and we know that in the case of abrutinib, the rate actually increases over time in patients who are on lifelong therapy. Over 80% of patients have at least a 10-point bump in their systolic blood pressure, and more than 10% will have an increase of greater than 50 millimeters of mercury. A good strategy here is to work with the primary care physician to optimize the patient's blood pressure at baseline and continue to monitor throughout therapy. What about diarrhea that's sometimes seen? Well, this can be managed conservatively with supportive care and anti-motility agents. What about arthralgias? Arthralgias are, can, can be a tremendous pain for patients on BTK inhibitors. And, and one of the ways to mitigate this is to use dose holds or dose reductions for patients who have a grade three side effect that is impacting their activities of daily living. So what do we think about with starting initial therapy with a BTK inhibitor or selecting initial therapy in CLL? We really look at a confluence of factors. We look at the patient's comorbidities. We look at particular characteristics of the treatment, be it efficacy or side effect profile. And we look at characteristics of the patient's particular disease. For example, their TP53 aberration status. So to sum up, the long-term results of BTK inhibitor studies in the frontline continue to show excellent PFS outcomes with overall survival benefits in the select cases that I've mentioned. And these agents continue to produce favorable outcomes, even for high-risk patients, patients who clearly would do worse with chemoimmunotherapy, patients with TP53 aberrations and unmutated IGHV. There are some treatment emergent adverse events that can be seen, but careful attention to detail and selecting the right drug for the right patient can help mitigate these effects. We do look forward to more mature data from BTKI comparisons that might inform us going forward when trying to select one BTK inhibitor over another. And with that comment, I'll conclude this portion of the presentation. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for the opportunity to present on time-limited treatment options in CLL. Time-limited therapy is not a new concept. Recall that before Brutinib was approved for the initial therapy of patients with CLL, time-limited treatment was actually the norm. Patients would typically receive a six-month course of chemoimmunotherapy, then would be observed off treatment for a period, and only treat in the relapse setting if they again met criteria for treatment. So this history really underlies the significance of time-limited approaches to patients. Despite the approval of abrutinib as initial therapy, many patients continue to opt for cytotoxic agents to avoid the chronic treatment of abrutinib. So time-limited therapy is clearly an important goal for our patients. And this really makes sense, right? It, it, it allows for treatment-free intervals, which may avoid chronic toxicities that are important to these patients. So can we overcome the greatest drawbacks associated with drugs like abrutinib, i.e. that it is continuous therapy, it's administered until progression or intolerance and associated with chronic toxicities uh, and avoid cytotoxic chemoimmunotherapy altogether, i.e. Uh, just get, get rid of this and use all novel agents. The BH3 mimetic venetoclax is approved in CLL and combinations of venetoclax and anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies are the only time-limited targeted therapy regimens currently approved in this disease. In the first-line setting, venetoclax is administered for 12 months in combination with obinutuzumab. In the relapse setting, it's administered for 24 months in combination with rituximab. And so with these approvals, there's really no longer a compelling argument, in my opinion, to use cytotoxic chemoimmunotherapy in CLL.
Venetoclax containing regimens have not been compared directly to BTK inhibitors in any prospective studies that have been reported. So what data really informs the decisions supporting these regimens? So venetoclax and obinutuzumab was approved for the treatment of previously untreated patients with CLL on the basis of the CLL-14 trial. Now, this was a randomized phase three trial in which treatment-naive CLL patients who required therapy but had significant comorbidities were randomized to 12 months of venetoclax and six months of obinutuzumab or to 12 months of chlorambucil and six months of obinutuzumab. The primary endpoint was investigator-assessed PFS. Baseline characteristics are shown here and were typical, with about 60% of patients exhibiting an unmutated IGHV status, 12% with a P53 mutation or deletion, and appeared similar across treatment arms. Venetoclaxobinutuzumab was associated with a statistically significant and clinically meaningful improvement in progression-free survival, as shown here with a hazard ratio of 0.31. Importantly, there was no difference in overall survival in this analysis. So how does VO fare across key risk groups? As with other targeted therapy studies, the PFS benefit appears to be driven by those with IGHV unmutated CLL, although TP53 aberrancy appear to impact PFS in both groups. Recall that only 12% of patients exhibited a TP53 mutation or deletion, and so this subgroup analysis is, is clearly underpowered. So I had to exercise some caution uh, uh, when, when drawing any sort of conclusions based on this P53 subgroup analysis. MRD outcomes data are depicted here for the CLL14 trial. And in the peripheral blood, 76% of patients achieved undetectable MRD at 10 to the minus 4, 42% at 10 to the minus 6. In the bone marrow, 57% of patients achieved UMRD at 10 to the minus 4. We do see recurrent detectable MRD in the months following treatment discontinuation, although most patients remain uh, 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 undetectable for some time, and clinical remissions are quite uh, durable as well. So why does MRD matter? That VO achieves such a high rate of UMRD is important and really sets this therapy aside from BTK inhibitors, which do not eradicate MRD when given as monotherapy typically, and from chemoimmunotherapy, which achieves UMRD less frequently than, than venetoclax and obinutuzumab does. There's increasing data showing that MRD response is associated with PFS outcomes as depicted here with UMRD at 10 to the minus four being associated with survival outcomes. And there's actually more recent data suggesting even additional benefit with even deeper MRD levels down to, for example, 10 to the minus five in a recent analysis. So what are the key takeaways from these data? VO is superior to chemoimmunotherapy for progression-free survival in unfit, previously untreated patients with CLL and achieves frequent UMRD, which we know is associated with survival outcomes. But can these data be extrapolated to fit patients? What about patients with P53 aberrancy? Also, how do we manage the toxicities that we know to be associated with venetoclax-based therapies? Hematologic toxicities are very common among patients with CL receiving venetoclax-based therapies with grade three, four neutropenia occurring in 53% of patients in the VO CLL14 trial. 
A primary driver for this is the fact that in CLL, bone marrow burden is typically quite high. Uh, and this also underlies the importance of maintaining early dose intensity. You know, for, for patients where CLL is driving much of the hematologic toxicities, we wanna to try to drive down the CLL bone marrow burden in order to allow patients to subsequently tolerate treatment even better over time. And so for this reason, for patients with grade three or worse neutropenia in the absence of fever or infection, I typically continue venetoclax at full dosing with growth factor support as needed. If neutropenia persists despite growth factor support or if severe neutropenia occurs later in a patient without significant residual CLL, these are the patients where I consider dose reductions uh, as per the product label. TLS can occur with venetoclax and requires a five-week ramp-up schedule to gradually debulk tumor, decrease TLS risk, but really TLS is a very rare event with appropriate TLS uh, risk identification, prophylaxis, and monitoring. Key here is TLS risk assessment. And the, the, the major distinction is whether a patient is high risk. This means that they require hospitalization for inpatient monitoring for a night during weeks one and week two of the ramp-up or low or medium risk, in which case outpatient monitoring is typically appropriate. How do we identify patients who are high risk? These patients have either a 10 centimeter or greater lymph node or a five centimeter or greater lymph node plus a 25,000 or greater uh, lymphocyte count. All patients require uric acid lowering therapy and hydration throughout the ramp up. And there are subtle differences between risk groups as shown here. There are many drug interactions associated with venetoclax, including CYP3A inhibitors or inducers, PGP inhibitors. Really important that we look at the med list uh, and consult our pharmacists if there are any significant interactions, which might warrant either a treatment change to one of their concurrent medications or a change in the venetoclax dosing, as this can be a little complicated during the venetoclax ramp up. However, it is extremely rare that this prevents me from actually using a venetoclax-based therapy it just requires some thinking in advance and requires that patients let me know of any new medications while they're taking their venetoclax. This slide is just highlighting a number of different studies uh, 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 which are looking at combinations of BTK inhibitors with venetoclax with or without uh, obinutuzumab and demonstrate that we're seeing high, uh, uh, high efficacy with very high rates of UMRD with these regimens. However, whether these regimens result in improved efficacy compared with venetoclax obinutuzumab alone, saving the BTK inhibitor for the relapse setting is really unknown. However, these data are clearly very encouraging. So can we treat young fit patients with CLL with venetoclax obinutuzumab? This is a really important unanswered question from CLL-14. CLL-13 is a randomized trial of chemoimmunotherapy with FCR for those under 65 and BR for older patients versus VR versus VO versus VO plus abrutinib or IVO or GIVE as, uh, uh, as here uh, described. In each of the venetoclax containing arms, venetoclax was given for 12 cycles. Abrutinib was continued in the GIVE arm for 12 cycles and permitted for up to 36 cycles if MRD was still detectable. Here are the MRD outcomes at month 15. Notably, VR did not result in an improved UMRD rate compared with chemoimmunotherapy. However, the VO and IVO regimens were each associated with highly significant improvements in peripheral blood UMRD when compared with chemoimmunotherapy. 
In data not shown here, the addition of abrutinib, however, resulted in more febrile neutropenia and infections and clearly adds toxicity to VO. And this analysis was not powered to compare the MRD rates between VO and IVO. And so these data between the toxicity and the lack of a demonstrated benefit of the addition of abrutinib do not support the addition of abrutinib to VO at this time. In conclusion, venetoclax plus a CD20 antibody is a time-limited regimen with venetoclax administered for 12 months with six cycles of obinutuzumab in the first line setting. VO is associated with high rates of UMRD and responses appear quite durable. Combinations of BTK inhibitors with venetoclax with or without a CD20 antibody also appear highly effective but require additional data, additional comparative data to determine whether these really uh, uh, add benefit uh, without increased unacceptable toxicity when compared with a doublet. I look forward to your questions during the Q&A. Thank you very much. Hi, my name is Katherine Coombs, and I'm happy to be able to speak about selecting and sequencing therapy for relapsed and refractory CLL and SLL. So in the relapse setting, we have two main treatment approaches that have demonstrated efficacy in this setting, including BTK inhibitors and venetoclax, which can be used with or without anti-CD20 antibodies. So there are important considerations for selecting relapse refractory therapies for our patients. The first, of course, is what did the patient receive in the frontline setting? But then what were their toxicities from that therapy and what was their response to that therapy? One should always consider the patient's age and comorbidities, which may have changed between the relapse refractory setting to when they were treated in the front line. Next is their current disease status, which can include their cytogenetic markers, molecular testing for TP53 mutations, imaging, and bone marrow biopsy, which is especially important in the setting of any unexplained cytopenias. Lastly, one should always consider the patient's social determinants of health as well. The current NCCN guidelines suggest that both BTK inhibitors and venetoclax-based regimens are the preferred options for relapsed refractory CLL and SLL. This includes patients who are both older and younger with comorbidities or without comorbidities. And they are always preferred regardless of the presence or absence of DEL17P or TP53 mutations. So what we see is that acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib are listed as potential treatment options for the BTK inhibitor class. And then venetoclax with rituximab is listed as well. So why is planning for sequential therapy so important? Well, what we know from this study that pooled four different prospective trials of abrutinib is that patients often discontinue abrutinib for a variety of reasons. Transformation can occur. It's typically an early event. However, disease progression is known to occur, especially over multiple years on therapy. However, the most common reason for discontinuation when using a BTK inhibitor in the frontline setting is other events, which primarily relates to intolerance. Abrutinib resistance, however, is an important consideration when we're thinking of progressive disease. And what we know is that the acquisition of BTK C481 mutations is the most common mechanism of resistance. However, patients can also have PLC gamma 2 mutations, or in 20% of the cases, no such events can be identified. So I mentioned that intolerance is the most common reason for abrutinib discontinuation. Well, what are our options? 
there is very nice data from Carrie Rogers and collaborators looking at the use of a calibrutinib in the setting of prior abrutinib intolerance. And this study demonstrated that that can be a very effective approach to gain control of the disease and enjoy a progression-free survival period. Do these toxicities recur? Well, the good answer from this trial is mostly no. And so the majority of abrutinib intolerance events that led to patients being enrolled on this study did not recur. However, of the ones that did recur, the majority of time events recurred at a lower grade. We now have head-to-head -head data on abrutinib with acalabrutinib. This is the Elevate RR trial. This enrolled patients with relapsed and refractory CLL and SLL. Patients had a median of two prior therapies, and they were enrolled if they had DEL17P or DEL11Q. It was designed as a non-inferiority trial, and in fact, both agents had a similar median progression-free survival of 38.4 months, but we got a really good look into the head-to-head -head toxicity comparison where we see lower rates of both any-grade atrial fibrillation and any-grade hypertension for the acalabrutinib-treated patients compared to the abrutinib-treated patients. These rare ventricular arrhythmias have previously been reported with abrutinib. They did not occur in the Elevate RR trial. However, there has subsequently been data from the Ohio State University group demonstrating that acalabrutinib can lead to ventricular arrhythmias. However, their definition of ventricular arrhythmias included both VTAC, VFib, but also symptomatic PVCs, which may have influenced the total VA incidence rate in that study. We also have data looking at the newer generation BTK inhibitor xanabrutinib in the setting of previous BTKI inhibitor intolerance. This study primarily included patients with prior abrutinib intolerance. However, there were few acalabrutinib intolerant patients. And what we see from this study is that this is also an effective strategy where the majority of BTKI intolerant events did not recur upon treatment with xanabrutinib. We recently got a presentation and publication in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at the final of an analysis of the Alpine study, which was the head-to-head -head comparison of abrutinib with xanabrutinib. This study enrolled all comers from a cytogenetic standpoint and was also a relapse refractory trial. However, the median prior lines of therapy in this study was one. What we see from the progression-free survival curves is that xanabrutinib led to a superior progression-free survival compared to abrutinib, both in the intention to treat population, but also when looking at the subset of patients with DEL17P or TP53 mutation or both. When we look at the head-to-head -head comparison of toxicity, atrial fibrillation and flutter, of course, is a huge concern when using BTK inhibitors as a class, and xanabrutinib led to a lower rate of any grade AFib and flutter as compared to abrutinib, specifically 5% compared to 13%. There was no difference, however, in the rates of hypertension between these two agents. Venetoclax is a BCL2 inhibitor that we have also seen excellent efficacy in the relapsed and refractory setting. This study specifically focused on patients who were abrutinib refractory or abrutinib intolerant and used venetoclax as a continuous monotherapy. This was a very high-risk population in that patients had a median of four prior lines of therapy and almost half had DEL17P, what we see is a median progression-free survival of around two years. 
The more modern way of utilizing venetoclax is, is uh, time-limited therapy, and the Murano trial examined the use of venetoclax combined with rituximab over two years compared to bendamustine and rituximab administered over a standard six cycles. The Murano trial demonstrated a superior progression-free survival for patients that were treated with Venar compared to BR, and it also demonstrated an overall survival benefit. The Murano trial looked at patients who relapsed and required a subsequent therapy. And what this demonstrates is that using a BTKI after progression on Venar is a highly active approach with an overall response rate of 100%. This is particularly important because the Murano trial primarily enrolled patients post-chemoimmunotherapy. And so these patients were typically BTKI naive. And so it's good to know that changing the sequence of therapy using a BTKI after venetoclax also is an effective approach. We also have real-world data examining the post-venetoclax use of BTKI, which is effective in BTKI naive patients based on these real world data by Anthony Mato and collaborators. The curve on the right, however, demonstrates that reusing a BTKI inhibitor after venetoclax and after BTKI that have been used in the past is not an effective approach if the prior BTKI was discontinued due to CLL progression with a median PFS of around four months. This brings me to the mechanisms of resistance once again. And so we know that abrutinib resistance is via the acquisition of C481S mutations. Unfortunately, acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib share this mechanism of resistance. And so it is important to note that BTI resistance that contributes disease progression diminishes the efficacy of all covalent BTK inhibitors. So a few takeaway messages from this presentation are that TKIs are very effective in relapsed refractory CLL and SLL, and BTKI intolerance does not exclude the use of a newer generation BTK inhibitor, such as Acala or Xanu. However, BTKI resistance does require changing to a different class of drugs, with venetoclax being the most well-studied, though there are a number of agents in development that also show promise. Lastly, there is an increasing data to support the activity for BTK inhibitors and venetoclax refractory CLL. Here's my summary for relapse and refractory CLL and SLL. We always have to ask the question, is there an indication for treatment present? If there is, the selection of therapy in the relapse setting depends on what they received in the frontline setting. Patients with prior BTKI and progression, I definitely would consider a venetoclax-based approach. Patients with prior venetoclax, I would consider a BTKI as the next approach. And patients who are treated with prior chemoimmunotherapy, both BTKIs and venetoclax are acceptable approaches in the relapse setting. With that, I would like to thank you for your attention, and I look forward to the Q&A session. Hi, I'm Andrew Lipsky again from Columbia University in New York, and it's a pleasure to welcome you now to the live portion of our program. I'm joined once again by my colleagues. Dr. Sumerai and Dr. Coombs, who are on the line. And for the next portion of the presentation, we'd like to start by a discussion of selecting initial therapy in CLL. And so to go over frontline cases, you remember from my part of the presentation, we talked about that really selection of initial therapy is related to a confluence of factors. Those include patient comorbidities, 
treatment characteristics and disease characteristics. And maybe one of the best ways to go over the selection process is actually to do some cases. So we prepared two cases for you today. And so I will start by talking about a first case and I'll pull in my colleagues to ask some questions and respond as we go through. So for the first case, we have a 72-year-old with progressive CLL, so a 72-year-old woman who had been on observation for two years. She has comorbidities, which are significant for hyperthyroidism, hypertension, and paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. And at her follow-up visit, we see that her absolute lymphocyte count has increased from 30,000 to 126,000 within three months. She also has lymphadenopathy of the neck, which has increased in size, which is making her socially uncomfortable. People are noticing this at work. She has grapefruit-sized nodes in her axilla. She's also newly anemic for the first time. Her hemoglobin has dropped uh, to slightly less than 10. And she lives two and a half hours away from clinic and is driven to the visit by her granddaughter. So that was a lot of factors for the case. Um, so one of the questions, maybe I'll open up to my, my colleagues, Dr. Sumerai, from what I've said so far in this patient, does the clinical picture looks like it warrants treatment? And, you know, which factors so far may favor indefinite or time-limited therapy? And what other prognostic factors might we look at? Thank you. Uh, you know, I, I, I think, you know, when thinking about uh, treatment initiation in CLL, we always think about what are the, you know, the key indications for treatment, the IWCLL. Uh, guidelines really inform this decision. And for this patient, I think there are really a, a, a number of things that would push me towards uh, considering treatment. Um, for example, development of anemia. Um, she appears to have a rapid lymphocyte doubling um, with a three-month uh, increase from 32,000 to 126,000. Though I just point out that oftentimes when folks have uh, a single point in time when we see a rapid increase, I often like to repeat this and make sure that it's not from some other factor, for example, an infection, a vaccine, something that could be driving this. Um, but I think that the whole story here of this progressive lymphadenopathy, rapid lymphocyte, lymphocyte doubling, um, and some anemia would push me towards initiating treatment. Um, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, what would favor indefinite therapy? I think the the uh, the uh, distance from the hospital uh, makes um, time limited treatment, which requires a number of visits for infusions and uh, venetoclax ramp up, would push me a little bit more towards a BTK inhibitor uh, based approach. Uh, and the prognostic factors, you know, I I, I would be, you know, I would want to know the IGHV status. I'd want to, but really, the most important thing here is p53 status, and so. Um, the FISH studies, as well as uh, next-gen sequencing for P53, are really critical and would help guide the decision of which uh, treatment we should be uh, pursuing. Excellent. Excellent. So let's advance the case forward then a little bit based on that request. And let's say that the uh, patient's prognostic studies are sent, and we already knew from the baseline, say that the patient was IGHV mutated. But now at this point, uh, we do repeat prognostics, and we see that on FISH, we see a deletion 17P. And also by next-generation sequencing, we see a TP53 mutation. So, Dr. Coombs, you know, would those particular prognostic studies influence your treatment decision about selecting initial therapy? Absolutely. So, you know, I think we found um, from her clinical presentation that there were already some factors that were making us lean towards a continuous BTKI. And her prognostic factors further support that as likely the, the best approach in her case. 
Um, so the presence of having a DEL17P and TP53 mutation, what that tells us is that her progression-free survival, should we consider her for a venetoclaxobinutuzumab regimen in the frontline setting, is likely going to be on the shorter end. Um, and so what we know from the CLL14 trial is that patients with TP53 and 17P aberrations had the shortest progression-free survival out of any prognostic subgroup, and that was around 49 months. So not to say that there's not some benefit, this is way better than what we were seeing back in the chemoimmunotherapy days. So I don't think it's the wrong thing to discuss that with the patient. Um, but I think because of these other barriers that we've already discussed, um, specifically or distance to the, the center, um, that maybe that wouldn't be the, the best approach. Um, what we know from long-term studies of BTK inhibitors is that continuous um, suppression um, of the underlying uh, CLL clone um, through use of a BTK inhibitor can lead to much longer progression-free survival. Um, now, of course, we don't have head-to-head -head data yet, um, but um, it looks like that's more <laughs> on the order of six, seven, you know, maybe even eight years in some patients. And so that does appear to be a very good uh, option for this patient. Excellent. And I, I absolutely agree with everything you said. And I think in the interest of time, I'll just round out, you know, this case presentation by saying that seeing someone with pre-existing atrial fibrillation, for example, if that patient was on anticoagulation to begin with, that's something you'd want to address with a cardiologist. But And, I, and that is not an absolute contraindication. The presence of a pixaban, say, is not a contraindication to combination with a BTK inhibitor. As I mentioned in the presentation, you know, rarely we do see some patients on Coumadin. That would be. Uh, but for someone on a Pixaban, there are strategies you could do. You could, you know, counsel patients to avoid other things that may interfere with anticoagulation. Sometimes we do a slight dose reduction in the Pixaban. I often do that in my practice, but that wouldn't, you know, preclude this patient from receiving therapy, especially given the high risk genetic factors. So with that being said, I think now we can move on to the second uh, topic for discussion, which is really the future directions for CLL. And so, you know, we saw a lot of emerging data at the ASH meeting. Uh, with drugs that, you know, have not yet been approved in CLL, but it's reasonable to speculate that in the near term, you know, sequencing patients in the relapse refractory setting, we may see some drug approvals. And so one of those drugs was pertubrutinib. And I, I think maybe Dr. Coombs, if you could help us out by, you know, talking a little bit about that drug and some of the data we saw and where you see it uh, fitting into the CLL treatment landscape. Absolutely. So uh, pertubrutinib is a BTK inhibitor, but it's Primary difference between the BTK inhibitors that are already available on the market is that it's a reversible or non-covalent inhibitor. And so when we look at a brutinib, a calabrutinib, xanabrutinib, those are covalent inhibitors. In order for them to have their optimal activity, uh, one needs a wild-type BTK protein with no mutations at the C481 residue. The most common mechanism of resistance to these drugs is through acquisition of mutations at that binding site to where they can no longer effectively inhibit that target. Pertubrutinib um, has a distinct binding mechanism through the ATP binding pocket, which works whether or not that mutation is present or absent. And so it has been shown to have activity in patients who have progressed on prior covalent BTK inhibitors. There's a very large trial that's been previously presented, the phase 1-2 Bruin trial. Um, and at ASH, we got an update to the data. Uh, it was like 700-some patients, over 300 CLL-SLL patients were enrolled and um, the good thing about the ASH presentation is we now have a lot longer follow-up. Um, and so with this uh, further follow-up, we have two 
very nice findings. Number one is that we see that the overall response rate um, appears to increase with further time on the drug. So earlier iterations of the study, it was around a 60 some percent response rate. Now it's closer to 80%. Um, for the patients who are the toughest to treat, meaning those who have been failed by a prior covalent inhibitor and a prior BCL2 inhibitor. But it's around 82% for the entire cohort of patients who had had a prior covalent BTK inhibitor. We've also now reached the median progression-free survival, which is just under 20 months for the entire cohort, median of three prior lines of therapy, and 16.8 months for that really tough to treat population who have had prior BCL2 inhibitor, which was primarily venetoclax or, and prior uh, uh, covalent BTK inhibitor. And that subgroup, it's not just those two drugs, they had a median of five prior lines of therapy. The other really nice thing about pertubrutinib is how well tolerated it is. And so even now with this longer degree of follow-up, we're seeing very low rates of high-grade AEs. Um, the only event that occurred um, with any frequency was neutropenia, but um, that was still not, not that common. I think around 10% was deemed treatment-related. And the rates of discontinuation due to treatment-related AEs are very low. So when you look at studies of covalent BTK inhibitors, abrutinib, it's like 20%. Um, even now with longer follow-up, um, the rate of discontinuation for PERTO is around 2%. That was really an excellent summary of the data, Dr. Coombs. I appreciate that very much. Maybe a couple questions regarding pertubrutinib. So when you see a patient progressing on a BTK inhibitor, do you routinely send uh, genetic studies for resistance mutations? And does that really matter for a patient who's progressing on a BTK inhibitor? Is that something that's going to influence your, your treatment? How do you see the role of that uh, at clinical progression? Yeah, you know, um, I have sent mutation testing, um, and I know a lot of people do routinely, but I kind of don't anymore because um, it may be because of my own nature as a cost-conscious clinician, but I don't think it changes management in cases where a patient's very clearly progressing. Now, if, you know, sometimes there's gray situations, are they progressing, are mm -hmm. they not, um, where maybe, you know, the presence of a mutation would help me in a clinical decision. But, you know, otherwise, I think if it's clear progression, whether they have a mutation or they don't, it's not going to change my next step, which is to change their therapy and not do another covalent BTK inhibitor. Um, about 20% of patients um, don't have a C41 mutation or a PLC gamma 2 mutation. And so, I don't know, I think my own view is if it doesn't change your management, maybe it's not worth the cost of the test. Now, we send it in the clinical trials. I don't think it's the wrong thing to send it to kind of get the full picture, but that that's my own logic. Yeah, I, I actually more or less agree with that in my in my own practice. I think progression is progression. And it's nice to know that for the C41 mutants, that they're super likely to have a response based on the mechanism of the drug. No, but for patients progressing, they're progressing, and this seems to be a highly efficacious drug. Uh, uh, Dr. Sumerai, do you generally agree with that or any differences in your practice? I, I do. I, I do generally send um, repeat sequencing at uh, progression. I think that um, uh, often this is largely academic. Um, uh, although, uh, you know, acquisition of a high risk mutation, like a P53 mutation at relapse does occasionally make me a little bit more inclined towards, um, a continuous versus a time limited, uh, option in the relapse setting. So it depends on the patient. It depends on what their baseline, uh, um, uh, genetic risk factors are and what the treatment options I might be considering to begin with. 
Yeah. And just to add to that point, um, you know, at my own institution, it's a different panel to get the BTK resistance mutations than TP53. I totally agree. I think it is helpful to know if they've had acquisition of a TP53 mutation so that I do send on subsequent treatments. And if it's a young patient, it may point me more towards even considering aloe for these really refractory patients. So that's a good point. Mm. And then maybe the last question on pertubrutinib, you know, we, we have seen some data continuing, uh, including a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine that describes the mechanisms of progression uh, on pertubrutinib. So, you know, do we see this drug as being potentially, you know, a helpful use in our armamentarium where patients are going to have, uh, you know, uh, prolonged uh, remissions on the drug? Or, you know, is it possible that there are mechanisms of escape for this one too? How do you, if you had to speculate a little bit, uh, Dr. Coombs, how would you evaluate that possibility? You know, I, I think um, with any targeted agent, resistance happens. I don't know if that's ever not happened once we've had enough time to study, um, you know, these mechanisms. Um, but I don't think that takes away from how much this could benefit patients once it's more widely available. And so the biggest area of unmet need is patients who have progressed on a prior covalent and prior venetoclax. There is almost nothing that leads to any meaningful progression-free survival PI3K inhibitors, um, chemoimmunotherapy, the PFS is like four or five months based on real world studies. And so pertubertinib 17 months in that subgroup. Wow, that's, you know, way better than anything we have. Um, but, you know, resistance is inevitable. And, you know, um, the resistance mechanisms are, are interesting. And so it was a small study, it was just nine patients that they had pre and post samples on. But what it showed is that the majority of patients developed new BTK mutations that were distinct from the C41 binding site. And some of these uh, lead to this kinase dead BTK protein. Um, and so I think it shows us a lot about what we could expect with sequencing. And there's some concern that may lead to cross resistance to other covalent BTK inhibitors. Um, and so I think, you know, we need a lot more time to understand how the drug works if we're considering moving it to earlier lines of therapy, especially if we were to move it to prior to covalent inhibitors. But as it stands, I think it's a huge benefit in um, the post-covalent and post-venetoclax setting. But I think yeah. also it could be really valuable post-covalent for those patients that just have difficulty accessing venetoclax, whether it's due to long distance to a center that can do it, um, travel considerations, renal failure, um, or you know, dysfunction, et cetera. Excellent. And yeah, I completely agree in highlighting you know, the unmet need in that double refractory BTKI and venetoclax refractory patient population. This is a really exciting drug for that for that particular patient cohort. So with that being said, I think we should move on to the audience questions portion. So a bunch of audience questions have actually come in. And in looking at them right now, I actually think uh, there was a, a question for uh, Dr. Coombs. If you can use a BTKI after a venetoclax rituximab and then after uh, a brutinib, in refractory CLL, which do you choose first? Okay, so I guess that's asking about, I'm not sure if that's asking about BTKI progression. Well, let me ask you that kind of question. So if you have yeah. a patient progressing BTKI inhibitor, a BTK inhibitor, you know, uh, assuming uh, uh, nib is approved, you know, where would you see that fitting in, for example? How about that as a question? Yeah, so to answer that question, I could see it very easily fitting post 
covalent BTKI and post-VEN, but I also, as I mentioned, could see it going before venetoclax given the ease of use and low toxicity profile. Venetoclax actually has a very favorable toxicity profile, um, but you know it, the um, ramp up necessitates a lot of visits to and from. You know, my read of the question is, um, you know, so you can do BTKI then VEN, you can do VEN then BTKI, which one do you choose? And to me, oh, I think okay. that really um, kind of, is where considering the whole patient matters. So I think they're both good options and, you know, but they're different. And so, you know, I think that's where um, a shared decision-making can really help talking to the patient about, gosh, is time-limited therapy that requires a bit more in the way of visits up front more important to you? Or would you rather have something, you know, a bit more simple, but it is something that you have to stay on continuously um, because I think either order is fine. They're just different. And so, um, you know, that's, they, they're complicated discussions with the patient, but I, I think both approaches totally fine. The caveat is, you know, when patients have TP53 or 17P deleted CLL, we do seem to think, again, not comparative data, but based on what we've seen in different studies, the, you'll probably get the longer PFS doing a continuous BTKI, but I still don't think it's wrong to do time-limited Venobi because you still always have the option of re-challenge and the patient still will get a time off therapy, but it's it's a shorter time to progression. And so that's just part of what, you know, education um, entails um, when talking about these options. Great. Thank you, Dr. Gomes. That was definitely the right read of the question. Uh, Dr. Sumerai, uh, so there's a question about your approach to TLS mitigation and monitoring. So how successful are these type of approaches? What should I tell my patients about their risks? This is such an important question. You know, I think that, uh, you know, first, these approaches are extremely successful. Um, you know, we know that if we uh, properly assess TLS risk uh, and then, uh, you know, give them appropriate uh, mitigation strategies like hyperuricine, uh, 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 uric acid lowering therapies, um, uh, oral uh, plus minus intravenous hydration based on the risk factors uh, and appropriate monitoring um, that actually it's very uncommon that patients develop uh, any laboratory or clinical tumor lysis syndrome that that uh, if it develops, you know, in my practice, it's it's typically, um, uh, uh, you know, often single laboratory abnormalities um, that uh, may simply require um, some additional hydration and retesting. But this is actually relatively uncommon um, with appropriate um, uh, mitigation strategies. Uh, and so, uh, in telling patients about this. I, I present the TLS risk as more as a, a risk of burden rather than a risk of medical complications. It's simply that there's going to be a lot of visits and a lot of labs, um, uh, but that that ultimately the risk of having uh, clinical consequences related to the TLS is, is extremely low. Great. And there's a question here that maybe I'll address to myself. So in the phase three alliance study, adding R to I was no better than ibrutinib alone in terms of PFS. Are there patient uh, disease-specific reasons where you might want to use an anti-CD20 therapy in treatment-naive CLL? So uh, that's a good question. Um, I would highlight in particular that there may be differences uh, between the BTKIs with their combinations. And particularly, we saw updated data from the Elevate-TN trial where uh, acalabrutinib was combined with obinutuzumab. And, you know, in that trial, we did see arms with acala-O and acala. It wasn't really adequately powered for that particular comparison. But if you look at the PFS curves there, 
uh, with the updated data, those those curves certainly do come apart. And so that's one of the interesting questions, I think, in 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 CLL going forward about the role of uh, anti-CD20 therapy. And my patients, I do uh, sometimes use an anti-CD20 therapy in combination with acalabrutinib when I give acalabrutinib. Uh, there are certain things that would influence my decision about that. Uh, if you look at the, in that study also, it was also underpowered to assess for 17 pt 3 aberrant patients. For whatever reason, there didn't appear to be a separation in that group, maybe because of the higher underlying, you know, mutational burden of TP3 aberrant patients and the biology of the disease functions a little bit differently in that group. Uh, but I very often, I do often give it, and certainly there were considerations early in the pandemic about sequencing anti-CD20 therapy up front. Another consideration would be we often have CLL patients that have autoimmune phenomenon and get treated with steroids, and then potentially they don't respond or they need CLL-directed therapy. That's another potential consideration. But I tend to do that on a case-by-case -case basis. But no, I do not give rituximab with ibrutinib in my practice. I only do AO and in certain select patients, and I think we need to see more data there. Uh, let's see. There are some additional questions right now. A uh, question for Dr. Sumerai. In the relapse setting, do you always give time-limited therapy with venetoclaxin and anti-CD20 antibody, or do you occasionally use uh, venetoclax alone? And maybe I could tack on to that question. Uh, which anti-CD20 therapy do you use? Oh, that's a great question. So, so uh, the uh, in the relapse setting, I I typically do use time-limited uh, therapy with venetoclax uh, and a CD20 antibody. Uh, I often use obinutuzumab. Um, although uh, acknowledging uh, that the the data that is that the the standard of care regimen that's really off label the standard of care regimen is venetoclax and rituximab in the relapse setting with venetoclax given for two years um, the the uh, in whom would I consider continuous venetoclax therapy you know I would say in particular those folks with a p53 mutation or deletion. Um, and if I'm going to go down that route, I do not include the CD20 antibody. I just give the, the venetoclax as monotherapy. Great. And maybe the last question for the day, and I can address this to Dr. Coombs. Uh, audience question asked, how do you treat CLL after both venetoclax and BTK inhibitors, that double refractory population? That is definitely the most challenging population. Um, being at an academic center, I definitely explore whether they are eligible for any clinical trials. If they are not um, eligible for whatever reason, um, I have trouble with that one. I mean, I have used PI3 kinase inhibitors in that setting, typically pretty disappointing response rates and high toxicity burden. I've used chemo like once out of desperation for a patient who had a toxicity to a PI3K. Um, but yeah, I mean, clinical trials are definitely the answer. And I think pertubrutinib will fill that huge area of unmet need when available. Excellent. Uh, I absolutely agree with that. And I think it's uh, 1259. So I'd like to thank everyone for joining us today. I hope you found this information informative and beneficial to your practice. Uh, just as a reminder, you'll receive an email later today with a link to the post-test. And upon completion of the post-test, you'll be able to claim your credits and download your certificate. Uh, so for more information on today's lectures and additional CME activities, you can visit Prova Education and, and ReachMD. And I'd, I'd just like to sign off by thanking my colleagues, Dr. Coombs and Dr. Sumerai once again. And we hope to see you for future programs. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Prova Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash Prova. Thank you for listening.